Hello, this is your fertility pharmacist. This podcast is for women who are trying to overcome infertility. If you keep a pulse on late-breaking fertility research, it could positively alter the course of your fertility journey like it has for me. Hi, I'm Elise, your fertility pharmacist. Today, I'm gearing this episode towards the women in pharmacy who are trying to become professionally involved in reproductive medicine. Many women have reached out and asked how to create these kind of pharmacist roles. I've been happy to offer suggestions such as apply for a grant, do a pilot study, create your own role at fill-in-the-blank organization. If you find yourself writing up a proposal to justify the addition of a pharmacist to a fertility care team, this paper is likely worth referencing. The paper is called Herbal Supplement Use Among Reproductive Age Women in an Academic Infertility Practice. It was published in March in Fertility and Sterility Reports. This research examined the use of herbal medicines and supplements in women seeking care at two University of Colorado fertility clinics. While yes, there are research papers out there that have already looked at complementary and alternative medicines used in fertility, the previous research was missing a lot of information that we pharmacists find important, like what other meds the patient was taking. What are the patient's comorbidities? And most important of all, which specific supplements are actually being ingested? Fortunately, this newly published survey addressed all of that. Here are the relevant details on how this survey was conducted. First, the survey was tested in 20 patients to make sure the questions made sense. Then, the University of Colorado opened the survey up to reproductive age women who were patients at their two fertility clinics. They advertised the study over nine months, first with two emails sent out in November and December of 2020, and then via a QR code offered during in-person visits from January to July of 2021. All those who completed the survey were given a $10 gift card. It's unclear where. That would probably make or break my participation for $10. In the survey, which was not included in the paper, they asked women about current and past herbal and supplement use. Women were asked why they were taking these products, how they were taking them, and who or what was their source of information that inspired them to start taking these herbs. They also asked women whether or not they had disclosed herb and supplement use to healthcare providers. All of these were great questions. After gathering the data, besides using stats to compare baseline characteristics of non-users to users of herbs and supplements, The authors then check for drug and supplement interactions using the peer-reviewed database called Natural Medicines Database Checker. My institution provides access to this Natural Medicines Database, so I double-check their work, and I'll provide input on this in a bit. Since that is the gist of how the study was set up, it's time for results. After reaching their goal of surveying 100 women, 95 women accurately completed and were included in the survey results. 85 to 90% of the respondents were white, U.S.-born, and had private insurance. Most of the women were in their 30s, with ages ranging from 24 to 45. 60% of the patients had an infertility diagnosis, and 16% of them specifically reported having PCOS. In terms of fertility treatment, roughly 25% of women reported using IVF, 25% reported using IUI, 17% reported using letrozole, 12% reported using clomiphene, and 10% reported using other hormonal injections. 
and unfortunately have no detail on what defines other. The most reported comorbidities were anxiety, depression, and thyroid disease. Regarding herbs and supplements that were not vitamins, nearly 70% of patients had ever used a supplement at some point. 54% reported that they were currently using herbal supplements with a range of 1 to 9 supplements per woman. Interestingly, 17% of respondents answered that no, they were not currently using herbs or supplements, yet when they reached the section of the survey that listed out specific herbal supplements, 17% of women then checked that yes, they were using at least one of the products listed. This makes me wonder if either the survey didn't clearly define what herbs and supplements were, or perhaps the women were racing through the survey without paying much attention to get to the $10 gift card. The most common herbal supplements used for general health and wellness included green tea, chamomile, peppermint, turmeric, and elderberry. Regarding the herbal supplements used specifically for fertility, women reported using CoQ10, DHEA, inositol, raspberry leaf tea, as well as plants from gardens that weren't named. Women also report using maca, yam-based progestin, ginger, goji berry, and unnamed combination products for fertility. Women most frequently learned about these supplements from family and friends, followed by the internet. The more than half intended to continue taking herbal supplements throughout pregnancy, only one in three shared with their healthcare providers they were taking these herbal supplements. For the last part on results, there was the check for interactions between herbal supplements and prescription fertility medications that women were reported taking at the same time. And 66% of women reported being on some kind of formal prescription. From the interactions check, there were no high-risk interactions found, which means that there were no absolute contraindications to taking meds together. There were 12 moderate-risk interactions, which means that taking the fertility med with the herb or supplement could be done with caution. I'm including in the show notes pictures from the Natural Medicines database of major and moderate interactions. The majority of the fertility med interactions related to letrozole, though all of them were theoretical and not clinically tested. The authors noted with regret that the Natural Medicines database did not allow them to check for interactions with commonly used IVF and IUI meds, and these meds were not in the database. However, when I checked two hours ago, I found Menopure, Luprolide, and what I believe was the FDA-approved version of HCG. The only moderate interaction from Menopure that's maybe worth calling out is one with tyrosine. HCG moderately interacts with ashwagandha, L-carnitine, and tyrosine. Time will tell when other important fertility drugs like gonadotropins or GnRH antagonists are added to the database. But for a pharmacist who wishes to contribute to an interdisciplinary fertility care team, it's a near must to be able to understand and point out potential interactions between fertility drugs and herbal supplements. Back to the paper. After stating the results, the authors spent about two pages discussing their results. While they didn't find any correlations between supplement use and comorbidities with prior pregnancies or with types of infertility treatment, the authors acknowledged that the results may have been skewed due to their sample population. 
conducting the survey at Denver Fertility Clinics didn't exactly recruit a diverse demographic. After sharing case reports of fertility-promoting herbs gone wrong, the authors next wrote of potential harm from the herbs identified in their study. Two women reported taking yam-based progesterone, which could theoretically impact progesterone levels during the critical implantation period for an embryo. They also honed in on chasteberry, which may stimulate the uterus and therefore should be used with caution during pregnancy. There was an emphatic paragraph which correctly shared that there is limited reliable evidence for herbal medicines and fertility, and that because the manufacturers of supplements and herbal products are self-regulated, the FDA will only intervene after bad outcomes have already occurred. The last discussion point I'll bring up here was the lack of patient disclosure of herbs and supplements to their healthcare providers. The authors noted that their rate of one-third of women disclosing their alternative medicine use was close to the rate seen in a study conducted in Australia. The authors speculated the reason for these low rates may come partially from a lack of agreement on how to assess or ask about herbs and supplements. Pharmacists are trained both in pharmacy school and during rotations to ask patients about urban supplement use. This is an area where pharmacists can and should offer to lead the way on having conversations with patients about alternative medicine. Pharmacists can also offer reliable information from their training and resources to patients about herbal supplements so that patients aren't primarily using family, friends, or Dr. Google to inspire their herbal intake. My main gripe with this paper was that it was only authored by physicians. No pharmacists or other healthcare professionals were involved. This pharmacist here was able to find three of the medicines supposedly not in the database. Perhaps those meds really weren't in the database six months ago when they were writing up the paper. It's also possible the physicians needed that critical second check. Pharmacists are accustomed to being the safety net for the approval, rejection, or modification of med orders. So it's a routine task for a pharmacist to take on the first or the second check on drug interactions. Following my obvious plugs to increase pharmacist involvement in fertility care, I'm concluding this episode. For links and more details on this research, head to www.yourfertilitypharmacist.com. This is Your Fertility Pharmacist. Thanks for tuning in.